Stephen, one of the pastors here, and it's good to be with you. If you would take your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2, this morning we'll be looking at verses 3 and 4, then next week we'll begin this great hymn uh, that is inserted there in verses 5 through 11. As you're turning there to Philippians chapter 2, this past week uh, we had two men, two pastors, uh, who went home to be with Jesus, and one was expected, and he had pancreatic cancer. He's also very well known, has written tons of books, uh, and may be one of the most well-known pastors uh, in Reformed evangelicalism, at least, uh, in the United States. Pastor Tim Keller uh, passed away and went home to be with Jesus. I love how his family, when they wrote it, Uh, said he waited until he was alone with his wife. She kissed him on the head, and he breathed his last. What a way to go. Honey, I will go that way uh, someday, 50 years from now, if the Lord allows. Uh, And another pastor who went home suddenly, unexpected. He led services last week as he welcomed mothers and had a baccalaureate at his church Uh, Briarwood Presbyterian in uh, Birmingham, Alabama, and then a couple days later was in a car accident and went home to be with Jesus. Uh, I was supposed to have a class with him in January. Uh, That was my next course with Westminster, and uh, so we will look forward to uh, seeing him in heaven someday. Uh, But you continue, as you think of their families, be praying for them in in some way. They bear a unique burden uh, as a whole country in a lot of ways are uh, mourning the loss of their families. But those families in particular uh, are bearing uh, a loss. This morning, we got to look at the last section in our Sunday school class on eschatology and the end times. We're going through R.C. Sproul's book, and as we sang this song, Almost Home, uh, these verses I thought would be very appropriate. R.C. Sproul says these are the most important verses about eschatology in the New Testament. Every one of you is thinking it's somewhere in Revelation, but it's not. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. There will be a day where we will face to face see God himself as he is. That is our eschatological, our end time hope that we have is to be able to see God face to face. We pray um, for these families. We pray for you as well. For There might be some in this room who doesn't know Jesus, uh, that you would come to have a confident hope that you are God's children now, as John writes, and do so by faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. Would you stand with me as we read Philippians chapter 2 this morning? Philippians chapter 2 and beginning in Verse 3, you won't be standing long, I promise. Verse 3, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests 
of others. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. If you're at all familiar with the Lord of the Rings series, you are most likely familiar with and probably, if anything like me, slightly terrified by uh, Gollum or Smeagol. The little guy who we come to see him as one who is emaciated and small, crouched over, withered, consumed with a treasure. A treasure in which he, when he first finds it, kills his friend over for it. A treasure that he calls his precious, that has begun to destroy him and control him. It's interesting, his whole body shrivels up, except what seems to be the bulging of his eyes, doesn't it? They seem to loom larger as time goes on. Everything is always in relation to Smeagol. All he cares about is himself and his precious. Everything else is dispensable. Well, Augustine defined the essence of sin as being curved in on ourselves. Instead of looking up to God in faith and out to our neighbors in love, we turn inward. John Calvin, writing 1,200 years later, says succinctly, our hearts are idle factories. And if we were to walk up to that conveyor belt on that idle factory of our own heart and desire to take a closer look at the idols that we are churning out, we would find that almost all of them bear a striking resemblance to ourself. John Stott writes, at every stage of our Christian development and in every sphere of our Christian discipleship, pride is the greatest enemy and humility our greatest friend. Well, this doesn't look good for us, does it? Because the text that we read this morning says, do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit. We are Christians, which means we have acknowledged all of our sins to God, asked Him to forgive us of our sins, and trusted in Jesus alone to save us for all of eternity. And yet, as Stott says, we will struggle all the time and in every way with pride. We know that pride is a death sentence, not only for us, as people, as individuals, but for the church. It is a killer for any relationship, but especially in the church, because we are destroying, desiring to live lives worthy of the gospel, not about ourselves. So when our pride shows up and causes division, we can sometimes be quicker to point the finger of blame at someone else, the pastor, a particular program, instead of pointing it back at our own sinful hearts and owning our sin. It can become real easy for us as Christians to have repented of our sins years ago when we became a Christian, and to become not all that easy with admitting quickly to one another that I did indeed sin against you. God, I did again sin against you, and I need to repent of my sins, admitting our sins before God and before one another. C.J. Mahaney says, show me a church where there's division, where there's quarreling, and I'll show you a church where there's pride. 
The truth is that in every church in America and in the world, there is pride. But it's how we as God's people submit ourselves to Holy Scripture and the work of the Spirit through it to desire to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Desiring to live a life worthy of the gospel of Christ in a way that is humble, unified. We want unity as a church. We want to work and strive towards it. Two weeks ago, we saw that it takes work, effort, striving together, side by side, standing firm in the faith of the gospel. Last Sunday, we saw that we view one another in the benefits of the gospel. The gospel transforms everything. The way that we live our life now as a Christian and the way we view one another as fellow Christians is in light of the gospel. But it also shapes in how we view ourselves. This morning, we will see that gospel unity requires gospel humility. Not just unity requires humility. That's something you can find anywhere. But gospel unity, those who are united to Christ by means of the gospel, who have repented of their sins and trusted in Jesus, those who have come to faith in the gospel still require gospel to be humble in the relationships that they have with one another to bring about unity as a church. If we want to be unified as a church, we must be a humble people. We must be humble to come to God and admit first we are sinners in need of salvation. And we must be humble to receive that gift of salvation from Him. John Calvin gives a definition of true humility when he says, everyone esteems himself less than others. And that sounds a lot like Philippians chapter 2, verse 3. If anyone, anything in our whole life is difficult, this above everything else is so, to esteem others more than ourselves. Hence, he says, it is not to be wondered if humility is so rare a virtue. For as one says, everyone has in himself the mind of a king by claiming everything for himself. Our text this morning asks two things of us as we desire to live lives worthy of the gospel and to be unified as a church. Number one, treasure yourself less than others. Treasure yourself less than others. Desiring to use that word because we all treasure something. We're churning out, as Calvin said, idols on a regular basis, a factory making idols. What is it that we treasure? We know that the struggle innate in us by our nature is to treasure ourselves. This morning, you spent a bit of time pampering yourself to get ready. Most of you did. And it shows. You look wonderful. But we're here and we're dressed and we're cleaned up and we're prepared and all of those things because we treasure how we look and how others will view us and how we might be received, and how is it that we look at ourselves in light of others? Let us treasure yourself less than others. This is gospel transformation work, because only the gospel and by it can we do this work. A non-Christian, you might know, might be pretty selfless themselves. They might be quite the philanthropist and give towards charities, seem very much desiring to help other people, but inwardly comes from a heart that is churning out idols of desires for self. 
The call to treasure yourself less than others is not just a moralistic idea or something to make you feel better about yourself. It's not the same as being a gentleman or mere chivalry. This does not mean that you also have to give money away to someone else to be humble, to treasure yourself less. Okay, well, here's my wallet. Who do I start doling out money to? But it's a genuine love for others because you have been genuinely loved by God. That's what the gospel reminds us of. To speak of the treasure that we have in the gospel is to be awed by something that has no equal. It is looking past someone else's sins and knowing the full extent of our own sins. It's choosing to care meaningly for someone else because they are a human being. They're a fellow image bearer of God. They have intrinsic worth and value and meaning. We treasure people more than ourselves, but this requires that we see people as God sees them, not as we hear about them in sound bites or in news stories. It requires that we see God also as God ought to be seen. To be able to view people accurately, to be humble in the way that we interact with others, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, and treasuring others more requires a change in the way we view them and we view God. In a moment, we'll look at it changes the way that we view ourselves as well. One person wanted to know how to do this in regards to the law, and they came up to Jesus, and it's recorded in Luke chapter 10. A lawyer comes up and puts Jesus to the test and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Verse 26. He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And the lawyer answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That's it. Love God with everything that you have and your neighbor as yourself. This is how you view others and God. But it continues in verse 29. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So Jesus replies with an illustration, with a story. And we know this story, some of us, to be titled the story of the Good Samaritan, where Jesus replies about a man who was going, traveling from Jerusalem down to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and left him for dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and Jesus continues and says, when the priest saw him, he passed by on the other side. Evidently, there were some other things that were more important than helping someone else out, but he moves to the other side of the road. And so likewise, also a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him, bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which one of these do you think proved to be the neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? Jesus asks. And the lawyer responds, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says to him the same thing that he said to him earlier, You go and do likewise. 
Well, this is how you ought to go and live. The story of the Good Samaritan in relation to Philippians chapter 2 strikes me in several ways. You have the Good Samaritan who sacrifices for a stranger. He is unselfish when it isn't easy. He sacrifices for someone that he doesn't know, for someone who, frankly, he could have done exactly like the guys before him and crossed over to the other side of the street. It's not my problem. There are authorities. Somebody will take this. We'll take care of this. We'll clean this up. We'll help this gentleman. It's not my problem. But the good Samaritan sacrifices for the stranger. The good Samaritan also is thorough in his help. He does not give a few things and walk away. He doesn't just leave him a bottle of water and a cold compress and walk away. He actually gets down and deeply cares for the person, touches their wounds, and cleans them. He takes them to a better place. He takes him to an inn and he pays a bill for ongoing care and provision. Every single one of us in this room, if it was us or our spouse on that side of the road, would have wanted this good Samaritan to come by. And the second that we felt someone reaching down to clean us and to help us, to give us a drink of water, to take care of us, to lift us up and to put us on top of his animal to take us somewhere in a warm bed and food and provision, care from one human being to another, at great sacrifice, at some sacrifice to one for one who had no means of helping in the other. But the great good Samaritan also, the thing that struck me this time was the good Samaritan had a boundary as well. He is thorough but he is not this man's savior. He knows his limit for this person and for himself. He takes care of him with two denarii, and he says, I'll come back and make sure when I'm traveling through again that the tab isn't more than that. But if it is, I'll take care of it so that the innkeeper knows that they can continue to add things on to the bill, which no doubt they might. But he has a boundary. He doesn't bring the man into his home. He doesn't all of a sudden take all of his debts on himself. He doesn't do more than what he has done in the story. But Jesus says, this is the way in which you care for other people. The person was hard to help in some ways and easy to help in other ways. The person is on the road and and it's hard because it takes more work than just saying something nice to them. Like sometimes we can do if we desire to not be selfish and we want to come and treat somebody else like we want to be treated. It's easy sometimes to just say something nice. You look nice. Is is that a new dress? Is that a new car? Did you get a new pair of boots? Something to show that we're interested in them because we would want somebody to be interested in us. Most of us would. But this is hard work because it takes more time than just saying something or showing you care for them in a small way. Think of all the small ways that would have been so nice and helpful for this person on the side of the road, maybe, that could have shown care, but he took time and money, expended a lot of energy to help this person, and treated them in a way that I would have wanted to be treated, that maybe the Good Samaritan would have wanted to be treated, as a human being ought to be treated, who's in need. So he did some hard work to help, but... In this story also, the Good Samaritan, there's also some easy work that he did too. Because it's easy in that this person that he helps is a stranger. It's often easier to help strangers than it is to help those that we know. 
It's weird, but it's true. We can, like we heard, go on missions trips around the world. And there are kids and adults and people that we will meet in light of that trip that we will never see again. I remember a missions trip that I went to to Taiwan and teaching a group of uh, boys, a classroom of boys, English uh, in the midst of their, uh, it was during their Christmas break. Doesn't that sound like a lot of fun? Got to go to extra school to learn English during Christmas break. So we're there and they were enamored, not with my teaching skills, not with my English language, but they were enamored with my bald head. And this one boy in particular, I have him on camera, and he just says, your head is so cool. And I just remember playing that over and over again and being like, this has nothing to do with like selfishness at all and ego or pride. But it's weird, but I never most likely will ever see that kid again other than in the video. I could care for him in a week and then walk away. But then I come home And the ones that I'm closest to, the ones that I know the most, you all, we are here together. We live life with one another. Pastor Bobby mentioned the realities sometimes in his prayer about our life groups and the reality of relationships that can be difficult with people that you see regularly and working through those difficulties. But sometimes it's easier to help those who are strangers, your teenager who maybe has difficulty getting up in the morning or getting going and doing something of meaning. They go on a missions trip, and all of a sudden, they're listening to everything the youth pastor is saying. They don't listen to anything that you're telling them. All of a sudden, everything that they are being told at home is the exact same stuff they're being told on the missions trip, but this person can get them to do it without even having to cajole them or threaten them or bribe them. But you're having such difficulty just getting them to do stuff. Michael Horton says, when we think about this, everybody wants to change the world in the way that we want to serve in all of these different ways, but nobody wants to do the dishes. Everybody wants to change the world. We want to do all these things. We can go out and we can serve in these ways. We can go on these missions trips or we can go somewhere far away. We can go do great ministry, big city-wide outreaches, but there's regular everyday stuff that is hard the regular everyday stuff with those that we know within our church and relationships that can be hard and we really don't want to do those. How many times would we rather sign up for a crazy, hectic week of VBS than to have a difficult conversation with somebody that we know we need to have one with? How much more do we sometimes want to take the easier road than to invest in the hard road, that is, the person right here, caring for those people well that we know deeply, that we're in regular contact with and have relationships with. But as we continue to look at doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit is not an easy task. And frankly, when you read that, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, just like we did a couple weeks ago, we can want to throw our hands up in the air and be like, okay, I'm done. I can't do this. This is difficult. This is over my head. But here Paul, in writing to the Philippian church, continues on, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, consider, count others more significant than yourselves. Who are the others He doesn't say count one another more significant than yourself. 
Consider your fellow brothers or sisters in Christ more significant than yourselves. We would recognize that if he's wanting to just make it a relationship within the church, but consider others more significant than yourselves. Paul might be implying in your relationships with everyone, those inside the church and those outside the church, a need to show humility and care for others more than ourselves, treating other people as more significant with greater value than my own self. I need to show humility to those who are inside the church. I need to show humility to those who are outside the church. In the New Testament day, when Paul is writing, there is definitely a need for Jewish believers to be able to see others in the way that they treat Gentiles, welcoming them, loving them, seeing them as brothers or sisters in Christ of equal value and weight within the body, as God has done in the gospel. But who are our others today? Who are others that you find maybe sometimes it's easy in your relationships with to have some sort of humility in regards to, but others that it might be difficult to consider them more significant than yourselves? Who would you say is an other, somebody inside the church, somebody outside the church that you would have difficulty considering more significant than yourself? I think that sometimes it's easiest or best to consider the hardest scenario. What are the hardest scenarios of somebody to think of a people group or a person? While it might be the best way to start by thinking through the hardest scenario, because then it'll automatically trickle down through the easier scenarios, but I would then say to start with the easiest ones, interacting with them to gain confidence. Somebody who is difficult for you to consider more significant than yourself, but in all of these to be praying through. It doesn't take too long to watch the news and to see what different political parties think of one another and their policies or people who are attached to those policies. Right now, there's uh, a great humanitarian crisis at our southern border. It would be easy for some political parties, those who hold on to certain political parties, to look at a people group coming into our border and to view them in ways that would be disrespectful or or inappropriate, that would undervalue their worth as a human being. Now, it's not my job. I don't work for the Border Patrol. I don't work for the United States government. Thank you. But it's my job to love one another, to consider others more significant than myself. And in what way can I do that, even in the way that I watch the news, in the way that I pray for others, in the way that I think about our own community? It was Luke who was mentioning uh, the pastor when they were in Mexico, taking every difficulty and turning it into an opportunity. Aren't churches the best at doing this? When all of a sudden an influx of uh, migrants or people from another area come into their, uh, their city or their area, all of a sudden they're the ones who are usually first at finding a way to reach in, to go into those neighborhoods, to go to those people, and to be able to find ways to love them and show and extend hospitality to them, to be able to say in word and in deed, you are more significant than ourselves. 
That might come and that might be here. I would welcome it. I would love to see an opportunity where we could do that and be able to have an opportunity for the gospel by showing others, even of a different people group, ethnic group, uh, even of a different personalities and diverse uh, other uh, ways of thinking to be able to uh, go about in appropriate ways to show how they are as human beings, image bearers of God, more significant than myself. We can do this with coworkers and neighbors. We can do this without losing the grounds of the gospel. Notice that Paul is in no way saying, uh, keep a shaky foothold in the gospel, uh, but do whatever it takes to go reach them. Give up whatever ground you need to do. Water down whatever truth you need to. He doesn't say that. A couple weeks ago, we saw standing firm in one spirit, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. But here individually, how can I... Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but consider others more significant than myself. Who are the others today? Thinking through, praying through faces and people groups. And let us do so in awe of the gospel and of the love that God has shown towards sinners. The same love that he has shown towards us is the same love that he shows towards those others those who right now are outside the church. This is how we keep a huge heart open wide towards others, is to regularly be in awe of God's huge heart towards sinners. That heart that we loved and we jumped right into when we heard the message of the gospel. We want what that uh, good Samaritan gave to that person on the side of the road. We want genuine love that is met with care and compassion and empathy So let us show genuine love that is met with care and compassion, empathy for our neighbor to show them that they matter to you. By calling ourselves and others sinners, we are in no way demeaning them or ourselves. We are reminding ourselves of the incredible love of God towards those who currently stand opposed to him. And let us be in awe of the love of God towards sinners as we desire to treasure others more than ourselves. And let us be ever aware of our deeply sinful hearts. This is in no way to be offensive to anyone, but that's the truth. As John Calvin said, our hearts are this idol factory. And while that idol factory, when we come to faith in Jesus, stopped in its power, the conveyor belt is still going on. So we are continuing to churn out sin after sin, and we know it in our hearts And so we must remember we are sinners too still and regularly. Regularly remembering and regularly repenting. Because if we forget, then we will think that everyone else needs to consider us more significant than themselves. And we'll have it backwards. We'll begin to have a heart that looks and turns inward instead of a heart that was transformed by the gospel to look outward towards others and upward toward God. That heart will continue to move in on itself if we forget our sin and our proclivity to sin and our need for the gospel again and again. We will be saying things like, I'm on empty. I need others to pour into me right now. All I do is give, give, give of myself. But when is it my turn to get compassion and care? 
Remembering our sin humbles us, gives us eyes of compassion towards others, towards those who are close to us, like our spouse and our kids, a church member, a friend, a non-Christian, or even one we or they might consider to be an enemy. But may we continue to treasure ourselves less than others. John Calvin again says, let him, let us, instead of uh, this, employ himself, himself in correcting and detecting his faults or his sins. And he will have abundant occasion for humility. In others, on the other hand, he will regard with honor whatever there is of excellences and will by means of love bury their faults. The man who will observe this rule will feel no difficulty in preferring others before himself. So us having a laser focus uh, on our sins and our faults and bringing them to God and on others having a focus of their excellences and assuming the best. When there is no humility, we are not treasuring others more than ourselves. There will be disunity and division. James writes about this in James chapter 3. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. You see the difference where there is no jealousy and selfish ambition, where there is a treasuring of others more than ourselves, makes this view of the gospel in this place, in these relationships, beautiful, desirable from others. How can we fail to respond to such divinely imparted encouragement, comfort, love, and fellowship that we saw in the verses preceding these that we are looking at this morning? How can we refuse to lay down selfish ambition and vain conceit, our hurt feelings and competitive urges? Having received such love from God, let us beg our Savior to turn our hearts inside out, to treasure others as more important than ourselves, to care about their needs even more than we care for ourselves, to fight for unity by cultivating humility that we see in Jesus, the King who stooped to serve us. When we have a big view of the gospel, it will give us a smaller view of ourself and a grander view of our brother or sister or those who are around us. The answer is not to put ourselves down, but the answer is to lift high the gospel. An intentional putting ourselves down is humility upside down. It's pride upside down. It's the same thing. We're continuing to think about ourselves and how everything affects us and continuing to work at putting ourselves down instead of lifting high the gospel. And the gospel raises up God in His glory and people in their love that ought to come from us. So number one, treasure ourselves less than others. And number two, take care of your own needs as well, though. Seems strange. Treasure yourself less than others, but take care of your own needs as well. 
But don't forget who you are and that you are a person, too, who has needs. This is not just a, hey, give yourself a little bit, too, and pat yourself on the back. But notice what Paul writes in verse 4. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. There's a looking at your own interests, but also to the interests of others. In your desire to do nothing from selfish uh, conceit or ambition, you must treasure others more than yourself. But there is also, as we mentioned earlier with the Good Samaritan, there's also a wise boundary that says, but there's still a need to take care of the things at home. Look to your own needs. Take care of what it is that you need. Those things that are essential for you, don't neglect those things. Now, we are more prone to selfishness and looking to our own needs first, so maybe that's why this comes second, as Paul's writing. But we ought not to give away all that we have all the time so that God's provisions for us are spent. This is more than just a financial matter, for sure. The Good Samaritan did not give away everything to the person who was robbed and beaten. He didn't empty all of his pockets and give it to him right there on the side of the road. He did appropriately care for him, and onward, even more so, by leaving money with the innkeeper. But he cared for him. We would look at that scene and see, absolutely, just like the lawyer does, that he showed mercy to him. Should we help others in need? Absolutely. Should we welcome people into our home who are not like us? Absolutely, for sure. Should we look for ways to care for the needs of others? That's biblical and honoring to the Lord. But Ananias and Sapphira, Acts chapter 5, they did not die because they held some money back. It was told to them that the money was their money, and they were able to do with it what they saw fit. But the reason that they died was because they lied about how much money they, were ha they had in the first place from the sale, so that it did look more radical that they were giving away everything to the church. And they could have said in the beginning, we sold the property for $100,000, and here's twenty-five dollars to help with the needs of the church. They would still have been alive. They would have walked out of that room wonderful, and have been generous, and not a person in the room would have said anything about it. But instead, they sold, we said it, we sold it for $25,000, and they pocketed the rest of it. It's making sure home is still good and being taken care of before inviting someone over to come and stay with you. You can't care well for someone else if your own place is not being cared well for in this moment. It is caring well for yourself, your family, so that you can try to look after the needs of others. It is balance. It is seeing this life and your work in it for Christ as a marathon to pace yourself instead of a sprint that takes it all out of you in a few seconds. It is also knowing that we do not all minister or operate or care at the same speed and capacity as one another. And it's not calling each other to keep up with us or not feeling that we have to keep up with someone else. Look at all that that family is doing. We should be there and doing that as well. And yet God and his creativity and the way he created them and what he calls them to is vastly different than what he has called you to. Take care. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but to the interests of others. 
Sometimes, if the church is calling you to give your life away to Jesus, to take up your cross and to follow him, but that means that you have to be involved in every program and emphasis and giving drive, and you're at church eight days a week, then it is overly exhausting every night of the week to be at church, to not have bandwidth, to even love your neighbor or your family well. And so should there be a treasuring of others, seeing them more significant than yourself? Absolutely. And should it be done in a way in which you still are able to look after your own needs and the needs of others? Certainly. Both of those things can go hand in hand without robbing one or the other. It's necessary and good work. It is lifelong, lasting work. What we don't want to see is brothers and sisters who come and desire to give their life to Jesus but say, but I could never live a life giving all of that time and energy and all of those things to the church. Being able to say, God in his kindness has given me this body, this capacity, has given me this wife and that capacity and these kids in this capacity. And God has called us to doing this. And this we can do well. Lord willing, all the days of our life until he changes our capacity or our mission. And so in what ways can we look out for the needs of others and do so while sustaining and caring well for our family, for this church, all while doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit? It is an impossible task. An impossible task. We mentioned the balance aspect. It is impossible for us to do this on our own. I wrote this earlier this week. The only way that we can do nothing from selfish ambition and conceit to keep this in balance is to be dead. That's morbid. But seriously, to say that you cannot be selfish is to tell us not to breathe. That would also mean that we're dead. And the reality is that we can't do it or we won't do it. The reality is that we have come to Jesus and we have put our faith and trust in him, but we don't yet fully trust him in every way. I don't yet fully trust him to care for me in the ways that I want to be cared for, so I must work hard to do it myself. When we fail at humility, and we will fail, let us readily admit we failed and confess that to God and to the person that we failed with. Let us confess it and desperately see our need to admit it when we are confronted by it. Hey, that was really selfish. Hey, what you did, that was really looking out for your own interest and no one else's. We need to look to Jesus, not just to our sin and reminding ourselves of our hearts that so, are so prone to want to pursue sin still, but we need to look to Jesus, who not only could do this, live selflessly, look to others as more significant than himself, he could do this, but he did do it. He has already accomplished this work perfectly. Let me close with a passage from 1 Corinthians 5. Verses 5 through 7 says, clothe, your, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, 
so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We've seen that to be true in the gospel. Let us continue to see that again and again as we rehearse the glory of the gospel. And let us draw us to treasuring ourselves less than others and continuing to see how God might meet our needs and the needs of others. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father, we are grateful this morning for the work of the gospel that calls us to yourself, that gives us new life in Christ, the glorious gospel of Jesus and his death, burial, and resurrection for us. And God, let, a, let that message of the gospel continue to transform us, even the way we view ourselves this morning. Would you continue to draw us to seeing Jesus, the one who, as we'll look at in the weeks to come, who humbled himself all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross for us. And may we humbly be willing to sacrifice and serve others, treasuring ourselves less, that we might ultimately treasure Christ and them more. Father, would you give us a heart that desires to love you above all else, to glorify you and enjoy you forever, and to love our neighbor as ourself. Would you continue to grant us grace this morning as we sing and as we worship? And would by your Holy Spirit, you continue to uh, take these words of your, your word of scripture and plant them deep in us and do the work in us that you desire to do through it. For your glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.